0: Welcome to Season 2 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go, always, a little further.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I am Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. How are you, mate? Very well, mate. (laughs) That's good, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to use mate again. That's out of weird. (laughs) Um, Do you reckon you can sell, Tim?
2: Well, sell me this pen. Didn't I give you that? Oh, no, you you gave me (laughs) that (laughs) pen. I think I bought this pen for myself, actually. Yeah, out of company funds. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're not shopping in the company, you're paying too much. <laughs> um, Speaking of selling, yeah. Today we have Phil Jones, mm. uh, a globally rated sales expert. In mm. fact, in the top tranche of salespeople worldwide, runs keynotes and workshops and extended workshops on all things sales. He's a best-selling author, and he knows how to sell a pen. In fact, he's got a fantastic anecdote on selling a pen. And the power of decisions when you are uh, about to buy an item and desire, mm. the overlay of desire over decisions. So um, started washing cars at the age of 14, <laughs> realized that he had a passion for sales, and the rest is all about sales. We're going to get into some fantastic discussion on selling, on the stage of selling, yeah, on manipulation, mm. and hopefully- And I'm not going to give too much away. Hopefully, we can ask Phil what's the optimum temperature to have a room (laughs) when you're giving a keynote presentation? Let's get on with the show. Uh, Welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 Podcast. As always, I'm Tim Curtis, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ben (laughs) Brock. You're always Tim Curtis. (laughs) We never do the same introduction. And joining us uh, via Zoom on video and audio, Phil Jones. Phil, welcome to the show.
3: Hello, hello. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the show.
2: Um, a lot of things to get through, uh, and I th- we thought we might categorise these as both sales and presenting, and noting that the two have a relationship. But perhaps just talk about your journey into sales, Phil. Um, I understand okay. that it, the dawning realisation at around about fourteen years old that you had a penchant, a penchant for sales.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know whether that's what I knew it was at the time. Um, But yeah, I started with my first business at 14 years of age. I started knocking on the doors of my neighbors and asking them quite politely whether they would be interested in having their cars washed. Some said yes, and a few said no. Most just asked me how much money I would charge, (laughs) um, which I later realized meant they were remarkably interested. And And I did okay with that little car cleaning business. So much so that by the age of 15, I didn't go to school quite as often as I should. <laughs> Even so much so though that I remember being invited in by my school teachers questioning my attendance, saying, Phil, why don't you come to class? <laughs> to which I'd respond with a question. Question was, how much money are you making, sir? School teachers rarely would tell me. But at 15 years of age, my little car cleaning business was delivering me around £2,500 a month. So maybe $4,000 Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. I built a number of small businesses through my teens, all very much service-based with me finding my own clients and then then delivering the work that would then sit behind that. And then at the age of 18, had the offer of a big university, but I didn't want to go to school that way around. I wanted to get my education in the workplace. So I remember saying to my parents, what if I can get a, a big job, the kind of job you can only get with a great degree without the degree, would that make you proud? She said it couldn't be done. Three weeks later, proved her wrong and became the youngest ever sales manager for a business called Debenhams Department Stores, Q jumping, uh, the grad program. Um, Got huge results for those guys, went from there to um, be the youngest ever sales manager, sales training consultant for uh, DFS Furniture Group, big independent furniture retail group. Went from there to become head of retail commercial director for two Premier League soccer clubs, Went from there to build a property business with a business partner of mine that turned over £240 million at its peak on a sales team of five. Um, and that took us through to about 2008, right? 2008, world got a little tricky for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was figuring out what I wanted to do next, small business networking groups and chambers of commerce and, and those kind of organizations were inviting me in to deliver speeches and presentations. And very much about how businesses can reinvent through recessionary times. What could they do to be able to go out and win new business when historically it had come towards them. And I was doing okay, I guess. So much so that people in the audience would say, can you come and run a deeper program on this with our people? Can you come and, uh, and deliver a speech at our next conference, etc.? And I guess I'm still in that vein right now, right? Is I've now worked with over 800 different industries in 59 different countries, five different continents, delivered over 2,500 professional presentations, written seven best-selling books. And still I only know how to do three things. And it's all come through experience of, um, of working in all these different environments. And the three things are acquiring more customers, getting them to come back more often or spend more money when they shop. Hmm. And I've learned that lots of people need help in those areas. There's the kind of a kind of a big, big area. And sometimes it's not more customers. Sometimes it's just getting people to see things from your point of view because mm. we're all selling something fundamentally, right?
1: And speaking of that, before we leave your bio, can you talk us through the Debenhams um, interview process? Because I, I guess you were selling yourself. You know, that must have been a pretty big ask. You haven't got the the credentials on paper. How did that go? How did you you fashion that sale?
3: Um. In truth, it's such a long time ago, I, I don't think I, I really remember its hugest things. What I do remember as like a 17, 18-year-old is I was in this beautiful position of not knowing that I didn't know
1: anything. <laughs> yeah.
3: so, so I didn't know that I shouldn't have been in that room. I didn't know that the chips were stacked against me as much as they really were. That wasn't a a feature in my mind. My thoughts was, well, I'll just show up and give it my best, right? I'll listen with intent. I'll understand the questions. I'll show up with authenticity, but I don't think they were seeing many people at that age that had real life experience. Mm. They weren't seeing many people that were four years older than that, that had real life experience. So I was an anomaly that way around. And what happened, I would guess now having interviewed and assessed thousands of people in my later career as to why I might have stood out in the second stage of that interview process is it was an assessment center. It was, you know, I'd stick 25 people in a room, run through a number of exercises, etc. is in almost all of the scenarios that were thrown down, I'd take the leadership position without being authoritarian, hmm and would guide the exercise through to completion and get some form of outcome. So I I, I guess whoever was assessing was like, okay, we're looking at people for a leadership program, here's a natural leader, Um, or or certainly somebody who's who's natural at leading. Um, and, and, And it was the ability to be brave enough and bring a version of what I thought was most helpful and most useful to that scenario, and always to be in service of the outcome that was looking to be achieved for by my employer more so than let me tell you why I'm brilliant. And I think this same thing is then true in a sales environment. The same thing is true um, in almost any moment of influence is if you can show up of service for the person you're looking to help as opposed to explain to the person you're looking to help why you're so brilliant, chances are then they'll then see your brilliance.
2: And you've talked about defining a problem as being critical to that. Can you talk to us yeah. about either defining or creating a problem that perhaps they weren't aware of?
3: Um, success in selling anything is is agreeing a common enemy and then presenting a solution to be able to then overcome that common enemy. And people want to buy things for one of a few reasons, right? One is to, to avoid a pain. Two is to be able to create some form of efficiency or improvement in their life. And three is so they either see themselves or somebody sees them as operating at a a higher level, some form of improved stature. All of those can link towards some form of obstacle, some form of challenge that says something needs to change here. Right? Either let's get clear on the problem, and if you, can get, if you can have a conversation with somebody and create clarity over the problem, show to them that you understand the problem as well, if not better than they do, they will then trust you with the solution. Mm-hmm. If you try and sell them the solution, they'll defend the fact they haven't got the problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: In an efficiency scenario, your goal is to be able to help them understand how much their inefficiency is costing them right now. Mm-hmm. So what we do is in an inefficiency conversation, the goal is to be able to prove that their bucket is leaking and just how much that leaky bucket is costing them. Now, all of a sudden, they think, dang, we need to fix this. We've just attached urgency hmm. to a scenario that previously would have just had like a, you know, a mild scratch on it. Hmm. And then if it's about somebody looking to elevate their stature, elevate their position, it's always about compared to what? compared to what, compared to who, compared to to why, and that creates the motivation. In every scenario of influence, all we really need to do is to understand the meaning of one simple word. And it's a word that's massively overused in the world of business, it's the word motivation. People throw it around like it's confetti at a wedding, but they have no idea what the word really means. And if you truly understand the etymology of the word, and you break it down, it actually derives from two words. The motive part of the word comes from the Latin word motivus. Modern day translation is the word motive. And the Asian part of the word derives from the word that we know as action. So the two words that exist in motivation are motive and action. Another word for a motive is a reason. And if somebody's to take action, it means they're going to move or they're going to do something. So the true meaning of the word motivation is a reason to move or a reason to do. Would it be fair to say that if the reason was big enough, you could get just about anybody to do just about anything? Mm-hmm. Answer to that question is yes. Our goal in being able to lead, influence, or sell anybody on anything is to find a reason worth moving for. If we can be consultative enough to find a reason worth moving for, we can get people to take the action that we believe is correct. Mm. So, a stri- slightly long answer, but hopefully there's something in there for you.
2: Mm, I like it. Um, now, in your business, words matter and we love the word sales, but some don't, and there's been a rise of this term business development that kind of softens the word sales. What's your thoughts on the difference between sales and business development?
3: (laughs) Okay. Um, People are scared of sales because of the thoughts of the negative stereotype. Hmm. My belief is that so much of this has been self-created by some of the heroes that have been created in our in our timeline, whether that's the Wolf of Wall Street movie, whether that's Glenn Gary-Glenn Ross moments, whether that's <laughs> let's throw a load of 50s up in the air, high fiving, etc. The heroes of successful selling in our modern generation are actually people that when you dig into the surface of how they created their success were in some way crooked. The customer was never the hero of the journey, right? Mm. That's what was not the story that was mapped out. So people are like, I don't want to be that. Like This isn't about me becoming wealthy. So that's the attachment that they have towards doing sales. However, in every organization, they still have sales reports, they still measure their sales figures, they're still looking to increase sales, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to do sales related activity. That to me is a miss. So what they're trying to do is to say, so that we don't get perceived as that, let's just stick a new title on it over here, and that solves everything. We call it business development. We call them relationship managers. We call them any other version of fluffed-up set of words. Then what we can say is that we show up with integrity and authenticity and we care about our customers. Um, My work is more focused on saying, how do we accept that we're all selling something? And then let's believe that selling is not necessarily a bad thing. And I'm going to play this out with you right now, see how it works. I want you guys just to play along with me. We're going to reverse the interview for a second. Mm -hmm. Throw some words at me, some adjectives that would describe a stereotypical salesperson.
0: Tenacity. Front. Style. Slimy.
2: Persuasive.
3: Isn't this funny listening to you two, right? Fighting two different arguments. (laughs) Well, you should take a look. (laughs) That's our styles. That's our sales styles. (laughs) Slimy. (laughs) Well, the typical response to that question is that barrage of adjectives that come back that you would never want to be described yourself, right? You'd never want somebody to see that in you. If I asked you to describe a professional salesperson as opposed to a stereotypical salesperson, the adjectives will now change fundamentally, right? You see a completely different picture. Now you're seeing authenticity. You're seeing a great listener. You're seeing somebody who shows up and truly cares. This is no front. This is somebody who means what they says and then goes on and delivers on what those promises are. And all I've done in that scenario is change one word, right? Stereotypical salesperson to professional salesperson, and boom, we see a completely different image.
0: Mm. Mm.
3: And the image is the issue. And that's something we can learn to accept by showing up with more authenticity into the world of sales and understanding that somebody who's good at selling isn't somebody who has the gift of the gap, isn't somebody that you can say, oh my God, they're so good they could sell sand to the Arabs. Like in today's modern world, you sell sand to people that have got an abundance of sand. They don't wake up the next day thinking, great, I bought more sand, right? They wake <laughs> up thinking,
1: oh, I've been done.
3: Like why? And they hate you. Buyers remorse kicks in. And in a modern world where reviews matter, reputation matters, there is transparency about your offering, the results you've achieved for past customers have visibility to future customers. Sands to Arabs, ice to Eskimos, etc., is not going to get you very far.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: What we need to be able to do is to sell at a level that still allows us to be able to over-deliver on our promise. Embellishing your promise you can't keep is the surefire way to destroy a business. Delivering a promise um, that meets the expectations that you made towards your customer and then over delivering on that is how you build a positive reputation.
0: Hmm.
3: So it's, it's a complex puzzle. Business development is something we do. Sales is something we get. Business development is not a job title. It's an action within a job description right? It, it, it's a thing that is being done if you have some form of account management responsibility within your job. Mm. And I think mm. us dancing around this stuff is, is a challenge. I do think we're okay to say somebody is more than a salesperson. But the result we are looking for is sales. Selling is an action. Selling is a skill. Selling is something that can be mastered. Selling is something that requires structure, training, process, perfection, and mastery. And trying to pretend it's an inherent thing that some people have and some people don't, Mm. I, I think limits people's ability to grow.
1: And one of the things that you've said um, in some of your videos, you've got fantastic videos. One that really resonated with me was the conversations with strangers one. And you you talk a little bit about that sales does require a bit of courage, striking up that that conversation um, and uh, sort of crossing that Rubicon, I suppose. That initial uh, discussion is something that requires a bit of courage. Um, but I really liked the the um, aspect you brought to that about the narrative. You know, the importance of. Telling a story, I think you said facts will tell, stories will sell. Could you expand on Mm -hmm. the the importance of the narrative and the catchiness of a story?
3: Yeah, I can. And I think for some more context, let's just insert that first because I'm a big believer that content without context is noise and the world is noisy enough, right? So we are looking to be able to say, can we create some form of context first? Context for this scenario, as we play this out, is I believe that a big change in the world we're going to see over the next decade is the last decade was all about marketing. It was all about creating inbound leads. It was all about creating autonomy within sales funnels. It was all about saying, how do we remove the human from the purchasing experience and look to be able to create something that works through the ability that we can now have more conversations at scale through technology.
0: Hmm.
3: That part of the business ecosystem is now remarkably saturated to a point that like Facebook can't get more users. Like that, that is a, like so many things are now at capacity because they've operated a scale. The old fashioned rule book is coming back into place where we're now looking for a quality of quantity. What it is gonna mean is that you're gonna need to make more outreach towards the people you'd like to do business with, as opposed to create stuff that people are gonna come towards. And knowing you've got our outreach, it means you have to start a conversation, not respond to a conversation. I think that's an acceptance that many of us leading businesses are going to need to wrap our head around, is that we're going to have to start conversations, not just respond to conversations. The difference of starting a conversation to responding a conversation is if you're starting a convo, you've got to create an opportunity. When you're responding, that opportunity was already created based on a thought process that existed in the other person's head, like that conversation that happened Mm -hmm. prior to them getting to you so we're getting to them earlier in the dance let's use a metaphor for this and see why it's so important is it's kind of like dating is when somebody goes into the world of dating they're either looking for a short-term or a long-term partner for one of a number of reasons right that's what they they're in this for but quite often in their early conversations is there is an element of small talk to be able to feel out a situation to say, is this person any harm to me? Is this person somebody that is going to be a threat to me, etc.? That's what the early small talk is. And then there's a micro ask. And the micro ask is typically an invitation, an invitation to some form of next step. In the dating world, that could be as simple as an invitation of why don't we meet up and grab dinner, coffee, drink sometime. When you're offering somebody the invitation of meeting for coffee or you're asking somebody to meet for coffee, answer me this. If you've ever been in that moment, was it the caffeinated beverage you were interested in? (laughs)
1: I've never been asked. No, definitely not. Right?
3: You go in to explore the possibility of, is there more in this? Can we develop this relationship further? Can we create more opportunity? And... This same thing is true with any form of outreach conversation. We've got to start further out, we've got to flirt to a point, we've then got to put a micro-ask that says, okay, we're now looking to better to explore the possibilities of this going further, and if that goes well, we jump to the next step of maybe having a dinner, maybe having a weekend away, maybe going away on a vacation together, before all of a sudden this is now developed to be a serious long-term thing. That's how business is developed. And too many people want to jump straight from A to Z without dancing through the steps.
0: Hmm.
3: What I'd encourage everybody to look at in their world is can they define the coffee, first date, weekend away, vacation for two weeks, let's think about moving in together. Can they define those same steps on dancing somebody from a stranger to being a long-term client in their business? And then understand how they go and invite people through each of those steps. Hmm. There's loads of ways you can do it. But it still has to be defined to say one to the next to the next. When we get into their networking environments and we're into that early part of trying to invite somebody for coffee, the thing we want to talk about is the most important thing to them, which is themselves. Yes, we know that stories will always sell. So what we do is when somebody is involved in that conversation, we show huge interest in them. We ask them things like whereabouts have you traveled from today? And we show some more interest about that. We ask other conversational cues um, like how long have you been involved in this group, in this kind of industry, etc." All questions that have no wrong answers. Watch what then happens is at some point in that conversation, the other person spins it onto you and asks you the, so what do you do question. In that moment, almost everybody finds themselves either bam, lost for words or they give their job description, they list the name of the company that they work for and they bring the conversation to a halt. Whereas if what they did instead was they built a little story, the little story could bring somebody into their world. Now that you bring them into your world, then you've got the permission to show them more of your world. Let's give a structure for building a simple story. Well, firstly, you need a preface that becomes inclusive, that sends more context. What could that look like here? I'd probably start it with the words, well, you know how most people. Mm -hmm. And I'm either going to say most people, some people, or many people. Give me the industry that somebody works in, and I'll build an example out based on that.
2: Well, in Perth, it's oil and gas.
3: Oil and gas, right? And give me something contextual within oil and gas that gives somebody a point of difference. What might be something about either the role they do or the service they provide within oil and gas that makes them a differentiator from elsewhere?
1: Yeah, say a safety manager.
3: Safety manager in oil and gas. So here's contextual. Well, you know how many people in this neighbourhood work in the oil and gas industry, right? Zoop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, for, uh, now I'm going to create a problem that behind sits behind that. Well, you know how many people in this neighborhood work within the oil and gas industry, yet what most people don't realize is just how dangerous it is. Context, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
3: I'm going to follow this up with a which means that. Which means that there are lots of local people finding themselves in high-risk environments and putting themselves and their families in danger without any true understanding of the impact of their actions. Now there's a problem, right? Here's what I do is I then jump in and tell the story of what I do. What I do is I help organizations locally to be able to make sure there is an increased level of awareness around those risks and dangers that exist within an oil and gas environment. Meaning that their employees feel safe, their customers feel safe, and that everybody associates with the brand feels safe. Zip it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That's better than saying I'm a safety manager for an oil and gas company.
0: Mm.
3: Because the only outcome that I'm looking for is to somebody to say, tell me some more about that. Or Mm. for them to ask any other version of a similar question. But note what happens here. In that scenario, if somebody says, well, thank you very much, and the conversation comes to a close, they are far more likely to remember that story with the context, the scenario, and the problem being solved in it, than they are that you're a safety manager for the name of an oil and gas company. Hmm. So what happens in the future, six, 12, 18, 24 months down the track where somebody saying, Hey, we've got a giant issue in our workplace right now is that we've just got, um, all these high risk environments that have come up locally and, and, and we need to employ somebody, hire somebody, bring somebody into our organization that can help us just communicate a message of safety and then police that safety so that we can continue to do business. And I have no idea where we'll find somebody like that. If that crops up around a dinner table, at a barbecue, wherever, the person who heard the story in the past now shoots up and says, "I know a guy." And we all love to have an "I know a guy" moment, right? That's mm-hmm. that's actually a proud moment when we can help somebody in their time of need with an "I know a guy" moment. That's a good feeling. Mm. So the more stories you tell in those early parts of conversations, the more that you give people colour and context around the kind of things that you do to help people, the more seeds you plant to create the likelihood of more I-know-a-guy moments in the future, which create the possibility of more inbound inquiries. So it's all about building an ecosystem through conversation that says my reputation grows and reputation creates opportunities. You
2: talked about the Wolf of Wall Street and Jordan Belfort asks someone to sell him this pen you have a different pen story and i love the story because it's about shifting motivation and or desire with the same object mm-hmm. could you perhaps tell that
3: story to us um yeah i guess i could um from stage i often give people a very big lesson around price and value mm mm-hmm and where value comes from. And I might take a pen from any given audience member, and I'd say if this pen was just at a yard sale, a car boot sale, et cetera, and was chucked on the table, I'd ask the audience, how much is the pen? Answers that come back would be answers like, you know, it would be free, I could just take it, it's 10 cents, it's a nickel, it's a dime, like all sorts of low-priced offers. I then say, well, what if I took the same pen and I place it in a stand? I put 12 identical pens alongside. In the adjacent compartments are other equally stocked pens by the same manufacturer in different colors, different styles, and the manufacturer's name is across the top of the acrylic stand. The acrylic stand is sat on the counter of a mid-priced department store like a Woolworth's, right? Mm -hmm. How much is the pen? Now what happens is I get a completely different set of answers on the Mm -hmm. pricing. What I then might go on to do is to firstly say that this is the same pen and help people realize that the exact same thing can have a demonstrably different price in a completely different setting, and I give them a third setting. I say, what if now, by alternative, the pen is laid down this side? Pen is in a box. Box is made of mahogany. Mahogany box is velvet-lined. So I've got a pen in a mahogany box. It's velvet-lined. This sits in a cabinet. Cabinet is made of glass. Glass cabinet is spotlit, so it has spotlights on it. This too is in a department store, not just any department store. Department store is in London. It's not anywhere in London. It's in Knightsbridge. The store in question is called Harrods. So I have a pen in a mahogany box. It's velvet lights, it's in a cabinet. Cabinet's made of glass, glass, cabinet is spotless, so it's in a department store, not just any department store. Department store's in London, London, and it is called Harrods. Now to get to the pen, <laughs> I need to speak to a member of staff. A member of staff is wearing a black tuxedo, has white gloves on, and his name is Pierre. <laughs>
2: How much is the pen? (laughs) It sounds and looks a lot more expensive than the yard sale.
3: But it's the exact same pen. See, I don't know a better way of explaining to everybody that in every single marketplace, there are people selling what seems to be the exact same thing for demonstrably different prices in almost every single market. And in that simple example, what are the differences?
1: presentation for one the environment the experience
3: and all the things you're saying all the things you're thinking all the things that your listeners are thinking right now all of those things are true
1: Mm.
3: when selling anything it's really the thing that people are interested in It's the things that go with the thing Mm. so the better you can get at articulating the things that go with your thing the more value people will see in your thing Mm. is that
2: something we all need to do the work on is this sales salsa Is it okay to manipulate people through the sales
3: process no there's a short answer to that and you know the great Peter Parker aka spider-man says with great power comes great responsibility Mm -hmm. and you know I've sold somewhere like almost a million copies of this book and I've got a couple of one-star reviews out there in the world that talk about the fact that the words in exactly what to say for example could be a sequence of words used for slimy manipulation. The answer to that question is yes, it could be. Mm -hmm. What that review tells me is more about the reader than the content of the book. It tells me that that is somebody that is seeing this purely through the lens of using this for evil. My interpretation of delivering up any tactics is you deliver somebody levels of excellence. They can use them for good or evil. I can't decide somebody's morality that exists in there, but manipulation is getting somebody to do something against their will for your business, for your benefit. Influence or persuasion is helping somebody to see that the outcome you're steering them towards is a better result for them. And your goal needs to be able to stand up to the decision you help somebody make long into the future. Hmm. If I was to redefine what a sales professional is, I would probably redefine it as nothing more than a professional mind maker-upper. See, no isn't the enemy. Indecision is the enemy. That's often the thing that we're looking to try and avoid, is, the th- is maybe. Maybe costs us more than no. A fast no actually allows us to be able to move on. If somebody's not the right fit for you, that's okay. We should pass. We're not looking to serve all the people. It's the people that are remarkably interested and just needed some more guidance or clarity to be able to help make that decision. And think to yourself right now, as everybody listening in, how many things did you nearly buy that you should have bought?
0: Mm.
3: Right? We know we have that regret. Is the goal of being a great sales professional in that is in those moments you tip somebody towards the right decision? Mm. Ultimate goal of a sales professional be useful.
0: Mm.
3: And I know that doesn't sound that sexy. But that is the responsibility, is to be useful.
0: Mm. And
3: if you're not useful, get out the way.
2: So we talk to leaders a lot about the theatre of leadership, about being on stage, about preparing for that moment, and whether you would respond as generic advice to someone who is involved in sales or whether you would respond as a keynote speaker. How do you get your head inside being in front of someone to deliver a convincing message? knowing that you have a finite time to deliver that message?
3: Okay. It's a big question. And firstly, let me share the mistake that I see in nine out of ten circumstances. And it's that people think that their presentation is about themselves. If what you get at the end of the presentation is, my goodness, you were great, That's a failure. Mm. If you get at the end of the presentation, that was great, you're a success. Mm. Just catch the differences. Mm. One is you were great. The other is that was great. Here is another lens that would help you see this. You are not delivering a speech to an audience. You are having a conversation with tens, hundreds of thousands of people individually that just happens to be at the exact same time. Mm. That's a different lens. Let me give you an example of what people do that, again, proves that they don't see that. When they say, how many of you, and they raise their hand, that is treating the audience as one. When you are asked a question as an audience, how many of you, what you're encouraged to do as an audience member is to look around and say, well, what's everybody else up to? Hmm. Instead, if I said, who in this room? See how that becomes an inclusive message across the board. So the work comes in understanding exactly who you're talking to. That's where the influence comes from. It comes from having high levels of empathy. Empathy means that you can see the world through the other person's eyes. If you don't have the ability to show that you care about what the people you care about care about, which is the best definition of empathy that I've ever heard, comes from a speaker friend called John Aker, is you're going to miss Same is true when presenting a sales presentation, same is true when a leader's standing in front of their audience, is you've gotta show that you're articulating this message through their lens. Now if this message doesn't come through their lens, then it's gonna come through your lens, then it's gonna sound self-centered, it's gonna bounce. How do you get it to come through their lens? You've gotta understand what their lens looks like. So what does that look like for me when presenting for a keynote? A ton of research to be able to understand exactly what a day in the life of the majority of the people in the audience are going through. Series of interviews with key stakeholders to be able to say, yeah, but what, what is it really like? It also means that if I'm delivering a closing presentation, I best have sat through the entire morning and afternoon session to understand the context of where my piece comes into play of the overall objective. The mistake that many people make in a conference setting is they think that their speech is the start. Uh-uh, you are in a relay, my friends. You just had one job for you to take a baton and run it to the next point. You need to know where you are in the race. Are you the anchor and the big finish? Are you trying to get us positioned for the sprint? Do you need to get us out around the bend quickly? What does it need to be? Know your place to be able to deliver and then understand that objective and brief. So me like jamming on all of this stuff here is hopefully helping people see that you are in service of an audience you need to understand their lens and you also need to have enough transparency of saying, what is my job in this speech? What is the job description of this moment? And you've got to check your ego, like not at the door, leave it at home, like leave it long at home and um, and be, a, be be of service at the moment. And that's a ton of work. Hmm. It's not mastering a speech in your bedroom.
1: Phil, you've spoken a lot about the importance of preparation, and you've also spoken about uh, using the room as a prop, particularly in a a video environment. I take it it's not an accident what we're seeing behind you in our little um, Skype window at the moment. Can you talk about what we're seeing in terms of uh, the the preparation that you've gone into uh, today?
3: Uh, Sure. And... and I'm a big believer in controlling the controllables in any given environment, right? What can you control? What can you um, be able to influence? So in any given environment, you have choices to make. As a professional speaker, I want to walk the room the night before. I want to make micro choices, like how am I going to enter? How am I going to exit the stage? What might happen on my arrival from a greeting? Are we high-fiving? Are we hugging? Are we fist bumping? Are we doing the elbow thing? Like, what's it going to be? Because these all become distractions if they aren't delivered in the right kind of way. Now, the environment that we're in right now is very much a makeshift environment. I traveled from our home in the United States to our home in the United Kingdom um, at the beginning of March, expecting there to be four, six, eight weeks of craziness and that we would just camp down in our cabin, take some quiet time as such, and uh, enjoy some family moments together, watching some of this dust blow over. That was one of the observations I had. I then realized that this is going to run a lot longer than anticipated. I then realized I need to be of service of my clients and service of some of the audience and need to do it from here. i got to make somewhere to work. I've delivered over 130 um, presentations from this spot in the last you know, 120 days or so. So trying to create an environment that works was important to me. Here is the first choices, is number one, have a camera that looks like isn't the first time that I've done this. (laughs) Also, have it lit in a way that says, well, actually, you can see a consistent uh, feel and image on this that looks professional. Consciously, in the fact that this is a podcast, is what we have here is we have a, a microphone in view that shows you and shows other people that I care about what this might sound like. Mm. That there is that conscious decision that is in place in there. Before we got into this interview, I shared with you that we couldn't speak straight away because I had to change my microphone. Because last night's presentation, I wanted the microphone out of you because I was delivering more of a live interactive presentation. I had a live microphone on and was plugged into that from a Zoom point of view. But you see how that would need to be able to move with me if I was to move around the room. What's in the background? Well, I've had to make some of this work, right? Is let's mm. just have a look at what some of the conscious decisions are. There's a bookshelf over my shoulder here. On that, you'll see the edge of some family photos and some things that are important to me. If that camera just moves slightly across, you'd see that you know, I'm, a, I'm a family man. I love my kids. Those things are all important to me, conscious decision. Orange is my favorite color. I do enjoy a bottle of champagne. That bottle of champagne has sat there forever. Guess what? If I'm entering into a sales conversation, or meeting, it's a great icebreaker question. Hmm. Someone's going to ask me about the bottle of champagne. Oh, and guess what? i got a story behind it. The story behind the bottle of champagne is this. I've had it for nearly eight years. I won it for a hole-in-one on a golf tournament, corporate golf tournament. Now, the irony is that I'm terrible at golf. I got a hole in one. I also shot 122 on that same round.
2: <laughs> it sounds like my golf round. Except, Except less the I hole in one. one.
3: The other issue I have is it's a Magnum. The reason I've had it for eight years, I don't have a spot in the fridge that's big enough to be able to keep it cold. <laughs> and every time there's a moment we should open it, it's still warm and it's going to take forever to chill. So it's like, it's actually a great gift that is a giant issue because mm. it can't ever show up in this world, right? <laughs> What else is true here is I'm about words. I like reading. I understand a lot about literature. I like going back towards the greats. The picture behind me is a series of spines of Penguin books.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Why? Because I just love the history of literature that comes that way around. I'm in my cabin right now, but it's still meant for business. I'm in the UK. So what do we see over here? We just see a little nod towards the fact that I'm British.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: See one of my uh, most prestigious awards up there in the top corner, which is... I was the youngest winner of the British Excellence in Sales and Marketing Awards. That was there. What else is there on that shelf? Is there some books? But also, there's a prop up there on top that anybody would notice that actually comes. It's a core product of one of the clients I was doing some business for yesterday. They're on purpose, so anybody in the audience could see some familiarity with something that matters towards them. And then because I'm not like, like, I don't want to apologize for the fact that I'm not in an office. I'm in my cabin let's just remind people that I'm in a cabin type environment. I've got a little needlepoint picture of our cabin on the cushion that sits there. That's existed for a while. So I built this set to be both comfortable for me to work within and also to serve the purpose of what people might see. And it also needs to work. So, um, I know that this is a podcast, but I'll, I'll show you what goes in from the other side here. Uh, And you can see that we're seeing a very different setup. So I have like a 52-inch screen that's in front of me. Why? Because when I'm engaging with 50 faces at the same time, I want to see them. I want to be able to see you. I want to get as close to feeling like we're in the room as possible. Mm. I'm also ring light. I'm backlit. I've got water around me. I've got, you know, iPad set up. I've got keypad shortcuts, et cetera, so I can navigate and be as present in this moment here as possible. Conscious choice is done ahead of time and not just about making something that looks smart, but making something that above all else works so that I can be present. Mm. That's the goal.
2: Love it. That's fantastic. We need to do some more preparation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're in some dingy little studio. Yeah, I feel very, uh, very underdone.
2: So... um A really nice episode that I listened to on your podcast, Words with Friends, was with Mark Bowden, who's a body language expert. Could you talk about the importance of body language? So, the nonverbal aspect of sales.
3: I mean, Mark is way better positioned to be able to talk to this subject than I am. And I, I, I really believe that Mark is one of the best in the world. So if you haven't checked out Mark Bowden's work and his book, Truth and Lies, etc., then then that's a, a read I'd plug into. And more than that, just look him up on YouTube. He's doing some masterful mm-hmm. work of deconstructing uh, big speeches, political leaders, thought leaders, and in, in, in the world of crazy that we're currently living in seeing mark deconstruct other people's behavioral cues is, is really a fun watch um in answer to your question i think body language is huge and as more and more conversations are showing up in this way around not like the zoom meeting room is the new meeting room right like mm. and i think that's going to stay around for a little And when you look at how business is done cross borders, you look at how business is done cross country, cross state, you're in Australia, I'm in the UK, giant chunk of my clients are through North America, is this operating from a distance is going to be key. And there are lots of subtle clues around body language that, that can make a big positive difference. I think where I'm best qualified to be able to respond is the stuff that makes a big negative difference. Lots the stuff we can avoid. When it comes to a small closed environment like this, a big part of body language is show me your hands. Like if I can't see your hands, then I think like, well, what are you doing down there? There's an inherent feeling of mistrust right, is if I can't see somebody's hands through an entire presentation, then I don't know what it is, but I believe them less. The second some hands come into play, mm. now all of a sudden we've got both more charisma, most, both more belief, both more enthusiasm in, in what's going to be delivered, but inherently more trust. And that goes back to strong psychological cues So when we can see somebody has an open palm, mm. then what can happen is that we can see different levels of of uh, of trust in that. Another biggie is... it. I was going to say, of course,
1: from a military perspective, the origin of the salute, you know, the the showing that you're you're not armed.
3: You bet. You bet. The other is listening. Is in a physical setting, it's very easy to be listening, right? Because you have to, if you're present and in the moment. You listen with your eyes. My good Aussie friend, Nean James, taught taught us that one, right? Listen with your eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's it's imperative that the same thing is true with through a lens. But you might have to amplify it a little more. You see, if I was in a room setting and I was listening to you, I could, I could sit back and I could listen like this in a room setting. I could grab a pen and a notebook and I could listen like this, saying I'm ready to catch any key points, which one looks like I care more.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Interestingly enough, though, this position of listening is how a lot of people sit and watch a movie that they're engrossed in. Mm-hmm. Yet the perception of that position is, are you even listening?
2: <laughs> this is the crossed arms that
3: uh, they're Yeah, crossed arms, very laissez-faire kind of laid back. So if I'm that way around, I probably just want to like engage my pan with a pad in front of me and say that I'm ready. One of the great ways that you can show you're listening through a lens is the ability to take notes down whilst you're listening because what it shows somebody is that you are listening. But if you really want to show that you're intently listening, then then this position changes things up significantly. Not only that is if you just noticed a difference in volume. Mm-hmm that is using microphone to show a level of sincerity, right? Is now all of a sudden we're projecting, but with a different level of intimacy because we're closer towards the microphone. So these are all cues that would show up to saying, how do you sell in an environment that is now virtual as opposed to in another direction? Hmm. Mistake that many people make, particularly in a group presentation when they're selling this way around is it might be in a Zoom room and the only thing you can see is speaker view.
0: Hmm.
3: Yet the decision makers at their end are in gallery view and you're um, doing this, and you're just checking in on your emails, and you're just um, catching up on elsewhere. You're thinking, "Well, I'll just grab a swig of my water, right?" Hmm. A- a- and it's showing this engagement. So the biggest thing for body language is to be in the moment you're trying to serve. And I think if you keep that as a rule, how can you show that you're in the moment you're trying to serve? Then you'll get more right than you'll get wrong. You want to then work on mastery, plug into Mark Bowden's work and the like Mm -hmm. of Navarro's work, et cetera, and start to be able to see what you can learn through the power of influence with body language. But that's way above my pay grade. I'm still (laughs) in awe of mastery of those guys.
1: So speaking of rights and wrongs, obviously in any sales process, there's going to be some failures. Any tips for dealing with
3: that kind of rejection? Um, Okay. Quick tip on dealing with rejection is firstly, understand it's part of the game. Hmm. Like You've got to get your head around. like If you're winning them all, you're just taking the easy ones. When somebody tells me they've got a 97% closing rate, I'm like, you're not trying hard enough.
0: Hmm.
3: Like We can all get the six-inch parts one after the other, right? But there is occasions where you have to take a long shot. And I want to see more of that. For me, an ideal closing percentage of qualified opportunities is in the 60 to 70 mark. Mm. that's where I'd want to see it, from somebody who has both quantity and quality of results. And that's only from a qualified point of view. I believe that we've got to do a lot more work in prospecting before even qualified opportunities show up. And when you think about prospecting in its very purest of definitions, you go back to people panning for gold. I mean, how many times did they dig down into that river to pull out a pan of sand to have Mm. no gold in it? That is what prospecting is, so rejection does need to show up. We've got to see that rejection differently, though. They're not saying no to you, they're saying no to the opportunity, the thing, the product, et cetera, and that's okay. Also, they're saying, no, not right now. Thank you very much. Hmm. And I want that thank you very much to sit on the end there, too, because it just changes the way you receive that rejection. Hmm. We're saying, no, not at this moment in time. Thank you very much. There's courtesy attached to this. It allows us to move on and get towards what's next. When it comes to rejection, though, what you can do is you can be professional about it. And you can ask yourself a simple question. Was it me or was it them? Hmm. If it was them and nobody in the land could have got them to make a decision today that is different to the one that they made then be brave enough to just move on. If you can look at it and say, what could I do differently next time? Then you've got the ability to be able to learn from it. Was I late? Did I over communicate? Did I make it all about me and the product and not learn enough about them? Did I do enough work to create enough context before I recommended my solution? Did I earn the right to truly be able to recommend? Did I create a problem worth solving? Did I get their buy-in early enough in the process? Like like so many questions you can ask of yourself. And if you're brave enough to do that work intelligently and constructively, then you can self-evaluate and grow. I've never met a brilliant sales professional that required or relied upon the coaching and development of their leadership to be able to create them into a position of mastery. Every single person that I've met that has been brilliant was wonderful at self-coaching, was wonderful at being brave enough to do the hard, dirty work. Instead of trying to say, don't worry, better luck next time, is to say, actually, I have a responsibility in this part. There are things that I'm doing, things that I'm in control of, that can lead towards better results. And there are also moments where nobody could have got a better result, move on from those, learn from the others. Mm. And that permanent refinement is what anybody who masters anything does. Phil,
2: is there a place place for persistent selling, you know, the cold calling, the telemarketing, you know, the horror of all that no one likes to receive those calls? Is there a place for it, and what's the success of it?
3: There's a difference between being persistent and being a pest. <laughs>
2: I know there is a exactly. difference. exactly he says pointing to Ben
3: and persistency, I believe is a key trait in professional salesmanship. Being a pest is just playing the numbers game and just having that dogged determination to be able to do so,
0: hmm.
3: we all know someone, if we backtrack in our life that had both these approaches to the world of relationships and dating. We all know somebody that was the pest that would keep knocking on doors, mm-hmm. keep banging out any opportunities they can, would would just be relentlessly after anything and everything. And we also probably know a handful of people that decided like, that's my person. And I'm going to keep showing up for that person with a level of persistency because I know they don't see that I'm right for them right now, but they will do one day and I'm going to stick at it. We know both those groups of people. Hmm. And that would be the difference I'd look at between persistent and being a pest. What it does mean though, is if you need to be able to amplify the, uh, the attributes of persistence, you have to understand the biggest difference between sales and marketing. And the biggest difference that I see between sales and marketing is that salespeople choose their customers. Marketeers make themselves more attractive towards every potential customer.
1: Hmm.
3: And I would look to better say, yes, 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 amplify persistence only with your chosen targets. And I got this lesson from a great mentor of mine, a guy called Peter Lee. Peter Lee was really my first mentor, he brought Dale Carnegie training to the UK, and we did a lot of work together at DFS. And Peter Lee taught me a wonderful story. And I was fascinated by his success. And I did the thing that I ask of a lot of successful people. I asked them if I can interview them and understand more about their journey and see what I can learn. So I asked for the ability to be able to interview them. And he said, yes, I could. And I traveled out to his house. Now, this is somebody who, in my mind, was my picture-perfect definition of success. He could do what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants at that moment in time. I also knew that he grew up as a kid with nothing. He was the son of a coal miner in Yorkshire in the UK, and he built this independent training business that um, had gone on to achieve great things. I was fascinated in his story. And when I got to his house, his house was called Two Towers. This was before GPS and Satnav. I I like found it on the map, and I'm like, it says I'm here, and I'm not here. And then I see a little gate, and I see a little sign. It says Two Towers. And then and then what I do is I drive up like a mile-long driveway, get to his house. It's freaking beautiful, right? He's got a garage for like 12 cars in it, and there's 12 cars in it. There's a load of vintage cars <laughs> in the driveway. Beautiful. Why am I getting invited in? I'm like, this is the bomb. I get into the interview with him, and I asked him a real simple question. I said, what was the tipping point? What was the tipping point that you went from, you know, working hard and doing okay, you like where you were in business for yourself, and then realizing that now you'd, you'd leaped over to the other side and that you, you know, you're almost going downhill and that you're getting some momentum and this is now going to be more than a living wage that you're going to gain out of this business, that you've actually hit some level of freedom. And he thought about it for a while and he said to me it was, um, it was just getting this one account when I landed this one account is the revenue off that one account was like three times our entire revenue from everything else we'd ever done in any annual period of time. But also landing that one big account gave us permission to go on and be able to win others of a similar level of scale. And the security of that regular payment gave me the ability to plug into infrastructure that meant that we would then be able to scale and grow. Well, Mm. that makes sense. I said, but tell me this, how did you get that one account? He said, well, when I started in this business, I always had one company locally that I'd really love to have been a client of ours. And I found out that the owner of this company was called Graham. And then I found out that his personal assistant was called Barbara. I said, and then what did you do? He said, well, after being in business three years, I finally decided to pick up the phone and speak to Barbara. And um, I picked up the phone and spoke to Barbara. Phone went ring, 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 ring. And um, she answered the phone. I said, can I speak to Graham? She said, what's it regarding? I explained what it's regarding. She said, he's not available right now. Can I take a message? He said, no worries, I'll call back. So I said, well, what happened up from there? He said, well, I continued picking up the phone. I picked up the phone every Thursday afternoon for a period of about 18 months. I said, and then what happened? And she said, then Barbara went on maternity leave. And during a period of 12, 13, 15 months, a number of other people answered the phone. People covering from different departments, temporary staff in the role of personal assistant. I said, and then what happened? He said, then Barbara came back. It was great to be able to find out about her kids and learn more about the story. Our kids were at similar ages. We had so much in common. I said, and then what? He said, it was probably eight months on from there. And following our regular conflab of just catching up in the world, I asked if I could be put through to Graham. She said she'd try the line like she always would. And this time it went silent for an unusual length of time. The phone was then answered by a broad Yorkshireman. And the phone was answered with the words, my God, you're a persistent bugger, aren't you? <laughs> to which Peter responded with the words, I bet you wish all your salespeople were as persistent as me. Hmm. That was the catalyst that won him the meeting, that won him the opportunity, that won him the client, that then went on to mean that he had the catalyst to live the exact life that he dreamed of, doing what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants. I wrote about that story in my first book, Toolbox. And before publishing it, I reached out to Peter and said, is he okay if I include the story? He said, yeah, sure, go for it. I said, answer me this, though. Do you mind like, if I just ping you a couple of questions? I said, firstly, um, like, um, was it worth it? all of that dogged determination and persistence, was it worth it? And what mm. do you think he said? He said, like, heck, yeah, yes, of course it was worth it. I said, second question is, is why did you keep picking up the phone? Why didn't you send a letter, find out where he plays golf, understand where he goes for a drink? Why didn't you show up and look to try and just be able to cross paths in other ways? Why didn't you think about any other creative solutions of being able to get his attention? You know what he said? Didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> he just delayed getting the 12 car garage then I guess.
3: Who knows right but the you know the persistency of digging in in chosen opportunities pays mm. being a pest damages mm. reputation. Mm. Mm. And my urge to everybody listening in right now is ask yourself this if you got a customer you wish you didn't have Because there's a possibility the answer to that question is yes. And the reason they are a customer you wish you didn't have isn't because you strategically chose that you'd love to do business with. It's because they chose you. Hmm. One of the reasons they may have chose you is because somebody else decided they didn't want them anymore, which means you're quite literally feeding on somebody else's waste. What are you doing in a proactive fashion to say, these are the four, five, six independent organizations that I'd love to do business with? And then do the work to find the people, then do the work to better get in front of those people, then do the work to understand the world through their lens, do the work to be able to understand what might be the first step, do the work to work out what the coffee is, do the work to be able to say, well, how about we go on a first date a- a- and break all those steps down. And you might just find that three, four years on from now, you're living in the business of your dreams, but it won't happen by chance.
2: Hmm. Love it.
1: Phil, we often end our shows with a little segment called Quick Questions, Quick Answers. Neither end up happening. <laughs> we tend to be pretty long-winded, but, <laughs> <tangential>. <laughs> but, if, but if you're happy for some ostensibly rapid-fire questions, are you, you
2: up for it?
3: Yeah, let's do it.
2: Your podcast is called Words with Friends, Phil. Are you any good at Scrabble?
3: Um, I'm lazy at Scrabble. <laughs> So my viewpoint on Scrabble is like, what is the quickest word that I can get in that means it's now no longer my go and it's somebody else's go. That's my dedicated approach to Scrabble. So sometimes that works out fine. Sometimes it works out with like, I got a four um, and missed the double word because I didn't see that I had an S to pluralize this. Like I'm that type of Scrabble player is I'm not in it to win it. I'm in it to get through it.
2: There is a rapid form actually where a, team of three or four actually all play on the same board against other teams of three or four and the idea is to get as many words and score as many points as you possibly can inside a very short time frame maybe maybe that's your calling
1: lightning scrabble
3: maybe yeah. i'll leave that for others that sounds great for that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: phil what's the worst sales
1: technique that's ever been used on you
0: worst sales technique um
3: Any example where people think they know things about me that they don't? Uh, all the And I'm going to go one stage further on that. It is the one that I see repeatedly all the time is my LinkedIn inbox. Mm. Drives me crazy. I probably get 20 people outreach a week with persistency telling me that they can get me more leads. <laughs> yeah, we get a few of those too. And I don't need more leads.
2: Hmm. <laughs>
3: okay. So those approaches are just yuck, make me want to vomit in my mouth.
2: I haven't done the research. I haven't even done a simple Google search on you, Phil.
3: You have. Well, I haven't even asked a question.
2: Right. Good point. Would
3: you be interested in more leads right now? No. Okay. Well, then your service for providing me more leads is of no use.
2: Made mm. redundant.
3: It's like trying to sell beef in a vegan restaurant.
2: Okay, so the picture behind you is of old penguin books. What's your favourite penguin book?
3: What is my favourite? Less of a penguin book, but I've seen it published in a penguin book format, is probably Pride and Prejudice, Mm -hmm. Jane Austen. And the reason being is the story is interwoven with opportunity and chance and, and love conquering all. Also, it is one of my wife's favorite stories and we see some of our story in that story, mm. um, which, which I think adds another level of, you know, of favoritism. And I think there's a lesson in all of that, right? Is our favorite movies, our favorite books, et cetera, mm. are often the things that we see parts of ourselves. in.
1: Yep. Cool answer. What's been your most satisfying
3: sale? Probably getting my wife to agree to marry me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think
2: many many will uh, will uh, side with that one.
3: Yeah, if I'm going to give a, a corporate answer, um, I would possibly say the securing the partnership with audible to record my audible original how to persuade and get paid Hmm. and pay a hefty sum in both a fee to me and a a level of production in order to be able to make that a reality in the front end was a great personal victory from a from a sales point of view of getting them to buy into nothing more than a vision for us to then be able to produce that vision together, be very, very proud of the outcome at the end of it, and to go on to deliver on the promises for everybody that was a part of it, both um, tactically and financially, that way around was was a very, very proud moment, mostly because of the fact that it it was a pure trust trade. There was no physical product. We were creating something together. and. and they gave me the permission to be able to deliver that and record that in one take. And they'd never seen a script ahead of time.
0: Mm.
2: You look fit, healthy, and happy. Phil, how do you stay? So,
3: um, I, I, I guess the relentless quest to be fitter, healthier, and happier helps because you say that I look fit, healthy, and happy. And, I, and I'm like, I got work to do. Um, these things matter. Um, I definitely give attention to um, looking to be able to stay fit and able and looking to be able to balance some mental um, energy and clarity and things. One of my favorite things to do is to just walk. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, right now through this period of time, I've been doing anywhere upwards of 8, 10, 12 miles a day, you know, up and down the the, the, the beautiful environment that we're in here. And I find that really helps for two things is unlike running or going to the gym or working out is I'm, I'm getting like a full body exercise without trying to get ripped or anything. But I get that mental clarity out in the air. I get the ability to be able to just blow off some cobwebs with, with some clarity of thought, leave the phone behind um, and just show up and be present. Drink a ton of water as I can. Um, I've learned that water is probably the greatest savior I have when, when fatigue potentially starts to kick in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the happiness piece is uh, I'm on the relentless quest for better I always see improvement I'm a fixer in just about everything but it means that, that my natural reaction is to look to see the good in things to say yes to stuff and then figure out what to do with it afterwards and I and I find that's a fun way to live
1: hmm. we spoke or we dropped a few titles before Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross uh, Wolf of Wall Street What's the greatest sales movie ever from an instructional perspective, either good or bad?
3: I don't think there is one. Um, Greatest sales movie is the best ones that I would look at are, are not sales movies, but love stories. Like even if you look at the classic movie The Notebook, there's a sales lesson in there that if you don't close it at the right time, somebody else is gonna get it, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. you know, there are stories everywhere. There and I think the if you look for the sales story in every in every romantic inspired movie, you'll probably find something that would be more instructional to you hmm. than you looking at the you know the heroic side of of, of business success, and I, the the trouble with movies and sales success is they don't go together. Because success in, in in being a an excellent sales professional is about all the work you do in the shadows. It's about all of the things that that nobody sees, and that doesn't make for good entertainment. Hmm. My I'd, last be, oh, I, I, I'd give another thing to look at as well is is crime investigation, is where people do the work behind the work to be able to actually find out what's really going on. There's examples in that that I think could create great parallels towards uh, wonderful salesmanship.
2: Hmm. My last question's one of music. What's your power song?
3: Um, I don't have a power song. <laughs> I love music. I love music. And I love music to a point that my musical taste is ridiculously eclectic, eclectic. And I enjoy that. I enjoy music as a as a tool to take me to other places. And they are often related back to either periods of time in my life, specific moments in my life of experience that I, that I enjoyed alongside listening to that, that piece of music. So I use music as almost a time machine. Mm. And that is, is a great way of being able to inspire. In terms of power music, I can just use it to help provide a soundtrack to a, mood, to a mood that I'm in right now to be able to reinforce that mood, whatever that might be.
1: I had images of David Brent from The Office coming into to Tina Turner, Simply the <laughs> Best one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Phil, look, I reckon that's a brilliant place to leave it. We've taken up far too much of your time already. Thank you very much for, for sharing your, your stories and some of those perspectives with us.
2: Bef- before we do close out, though, Phil um, M. Jones, how do people find out more mm. about you?
3: Uh, sure, yeah. Firstly, well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a fun conversation. I've enjoyed being here um in terms of finding out more about me philmjones.com is my website you can find lots of links out from there of other information kind of services we provide books i've written etc etc and if you just want to continue the conversation share a comment both linkedin and instagram are probably the two platforms that you can engage with me easiest know that it's me you're going to be able to speak to and we can continue the chat from there
1: sounds brilliant we'll provide links to all of those in our show notes but phil thank you very much Huge pleasure.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.